This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. This episode is brought to you by Nemo Equipment. I've worked with Nemo for some time now, and their gear is perfect for the outdoors. With a complete line of products specifically designed for anglers and hunters, I personally help test and review their equipment during the design process. From camp showers to sleeping bags, backcountry shelters to tents, every detail is thought out and carefully designed. The dark timber tent is my choice for flyout trips when I need an all-weather setup. Check it out for yourself. Go to www.nemoequipment.com and use the code ANCHORED17 for a 25% discount off your first order of this amazing gear. There's more to Les Stroud than one might think. Survivor man, musician, filmmaker, guide, outdoorsman, entrepreneur, he's a man of many talents. In this episode, I meet with Les to hear the story about his famous television series and to pick his brain about living in the great outdoors. Do you want to have a sip first? Go for it. Yes, I do want to have a sip of wine. Go ahead. Where were you born and raised? I was born the west end of Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Basically, the suburbs, and it was that whole nuclear housing, like small bungalows, neighborhood, suburban neighborhood. And depending on how fast you want to get to the teenage years, that really is where I started. Okay, I'm not in a hurry to get to teenage years. Okay. Were your parents outdoors people? No, not at all. And that's one of the things I think a lot of times with... A persona such as Survivor Man or a reputation of what I do with that, you know, you want to get the cliche answer, you know, oh, actually I was raised by wolves, you know, and (laughs) 
which of course is silly, but people actually want, you know, they want to hear that. They really want to know that, oh yeah, he's like, man, he was raised by wolves, just like Tarzan. And in fact, um, my parents had zero adventure adrenaline in them whatsoever. So none of my influences into loving nature and loving adventure came from my parents. I understand that. What about siblings? Did you have any siblings growing up? Uh, sister, one sister, four years older. Okay. Mm-hmm. And was she into the outdoors at all? Same as me. You know, I think she loved fishing. You know, we grew up as kids. We did have a cottage. So I guess I should give my parents a little more credit. We had a cottage up in Muskoka, Ontario, and it was on the outdoorsy side. It meant fishing. That's really all it meant. I would go and it was all bait fishing for bass and pickerel, uh, right. pike and catching snapping turtles by accident. Okay. <laughs> um, and so my sister and I grew up absolutely fishing at the cottage, enjoying the cottage, getting mosquito bitten. So that was part of our past. I, I never included in the adventure scenario because it, it, it seems it's a different ambiance than, say, having parents who kayaked or canoed. You know, it was go to the cottage, watch my uncles get drunk and play horseshoes and play cards at night. Oh, and get up in the morning and go fishing. So it was kind of that, yeah, that sort of we're getting a break from the city. But the beautiful, beautiful part was when I was young enough, I would stay there. I would be at the cottage all summer. Okay. Now we will fast forward into your high school years. Is that where you really started to gain an independence and get outside more on your own? <laughs> no, no. I would backtrack you actually to my younger years. Now, high school is when I started to move away from it. Ah. Um, when I was fairly young, uh, preteen, I devoured all things Jacques Cousteau on television and um, Tarzan movies, the Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. That, to me, was fantasy world. And, and I fancied myself being a National Geographic photographer one day, uh, photographing wildlife. But my sort of low-rent kind of background with my my parents, you know, not ever, ever being guided or mentored into how you could succeed at life, I assumed that was way out of touch for me. There was not a chance that I would ever be able to be anything like that. So my escape was the cottage and being a kid and going out and playing in the bush. And I mean, I was fascinated. I would play for hours with ants and anthills and collect ants and worms. And I was the best, you know, worm catcher for fishing you ever saw, you know. In fact, I had a bet one time, guys, I, I said I could do, a, I could catch you a hundred worms in an hour. And he was, uh, made a bet and I caught him a hundred worms in an hour. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, the background of me and adventure in the outdoors was definitely in my youth preteens. But it was not, I'm not going to say it was discouraged, but it wasn't encouraged either. But this is more of a psychological answer in terms of what my relationship was like with my parents because they were not motivators, not mentors, not guiders. They just kind of, it was, everything was agnostic. From religion to life was agnostic in my, in my background. So whatever I was going to do, I had to do on my own. I had to figure out for myself. Was there any part of you that wanted to rebel? Oh, sure. Every part of me wanted to rebel. Uh, You know, classic teenager in the 70s in the West End suburbs of Toronto. I mean, rebellion in our wimpy, you know, stoner head kind of way was was what we did. And so enter the teenage years. And so enter my 14th year where I discovered music. I always knew music was, you know, I liked it a lot. And I felt like I had an affinity. But when I was 14, two things happened. Both of these things were in school. We studied uh, these two albums. Uh, We must have had very hippie, cool music teachers. Because the first album we studied was Jesus Christ Superstar. And I'm like, whoa. (laughs) And the second album was Goodbye Albert Road by Elton John. 
And when I heard that, that was it. I was smitten with music. So I didn't, I, I never turned my back on nature and adventure, but I moved from a stage of life where everything was about the cottage and getting dirty and collecting ants to rock and roll. Where do you go from there? Do you decide that you're going to finish high school and go to college? For my story, um, you go, you shift into wasting seven years of your life. Yeah. And I know, and it's, you know, I've, I have this discussion with people about when we get sort of deeper and more philosophical about things like, should you have regrets and shouldn't you? And all that sort of stuff like that. Oh, you grow from every mistake you make and blah, blah, blah. Well, I then at 14, my parents divorced. As I said, it was that boring West End suburb, listen to Sticks and Zeppelin and Neil Young and Super Tramp and smoke pot and drink beer. Can I say that on your show? Of course you can. Okay. And it's totally uncensored. Say whatever you'd like. Okay. And, you know, I was that, what is it, Detroit Rock City, that, that movie? I was the, you know, I'm the long-haired kid, the, the little stoner on the side who's, not, who's failing classes in school and getting pudgy, you know, not making a single sports team. So that's why I say, really, I told myself I was going after a life in music because I thought that style of life was part of a life in music. Oh, you got to be a partier. Yeah. But in fact, shy of guidance and mentorship, I definitely wasted, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I usually put the number on between seven and 10 years. Okay. Do you regret it? Absolutely. 100%. Really? I regret it. Yeah. You know, I, I've said that before. There's, there's a couple of things. There's two th- major m- points in my life that, oh, but Les, look at who you are now. Look, look what you became. Look what you accomplished. Yeah. So I still, what would maybe, you know, and you know, if you'd gone down that road, maybe it wouldn't have worked out. Yeah. Or maybe it would have, and I should have, <laughs> but I didn't because I was an idiot. Like I'm, I'm, I, I'll argue that one until the day is long because uh, you know, I, I, uh, that's just been my thing. I think so. But I think that's part of maturity and growing up is realizing and accepting. Yeah, I've got uh, I've got a few regrets in my background. And when I do talks to kids, you know, I point that out. So, for example, when I talk about my years, just basically, I could say it was years of drinking beer, smoking pot, skipping school, and listening to Zeppelin. When I talk about that, I'll say to to kids in a school, I'll say, "Look, at you want to know what I have for all the, you know, what I've got to show for all these years." Of, of doing that, a couple of giggles. That's it. I have nothing more from seven years of my existence than remembering some a few nights giggling and being stoned with some teenage friends. It, it's, it's, did it shape me? Of course it shaped me. It was, but did it shape me well? I, oh, it's given me a maturity I can utilize now, and we can all argue about whether that was fate and necessary because I talk to kids now. Sure, but in the end... I still feel I very much wasted my teenage years. I don't really have much to show for them. I was, yeah, I really don't. You know, I can't say I built upon myself. In fact, I've spent the last 30 plus five years trying to bounce back from that lost period. I, as a matter of fact, you know what? I really only feel that as of a few years ago that I caught up. Like, really? and I'm 55. Yeah. I know I look 35, but I'm 55. (laughs) So I really only felt that I caught up just a couple of years ago. It took me that long to catch up from blowing, which is why, like Wayne Gretzky says, uh, you know, work hard when you're young so you can play when you're older. Why? Because it's way cooler to play when you're 30 and 40 than it is when you're 15 and 25. But 15-year-olds and 25-year-olds don't know that. No, that's true. What would you have done differently? Would you have gotten more into the outdoors or would you have focused on your music? 
I would have focused on my music. I guess in some ways, if I'd known or been mature enough, I would have, I would have said, okay, no guidance or mentorship from my own parents. Where can I seek this out? It's hard to get though. You know, you show up as a kid in a blue jean jacket with pimples and pack of players light in your pocket and long hair. And, you know, you, you, even it, just that, that appearance and you don't get, you know, mentorship volunteered to you, let's say, you know, so what would I have done differently? I would have maybe sought out guidance and I would have found a way to be more diligent and responsible to, uh, to my music. Well, I respect that. Yeah. So after your seven year hiatus, if you will, mm. what'd you do from there? Well, I was still on the kick of music, still on the high of music, still very much in love with music as I am today. And, um, something, this is the, the, for me, the interesting twist, regardless of that wasted time and in spite of a neighborhood that fostered life complacency, you know, a neighborhood that fostered, just go get a job, come with work, work with us in shipping, receiving, not to Milan shipping, receiving, believe me, I did it. You know, I worked in every blue collar job you can imagine just about, but something really kept burning, burning inside all the time. And, and, what would be that phrase? It would be, I'm better than this. I can get out of Mimico. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't have to end up an alcoholic like a lot of my friends. You know, I don't have to end up in, I, I've got some close friends who've been in the same job for 35 years since they left high school. And still the most important thing is the game on the weekend and a case of beer. And again, I'm not maligning that or it's, it's great to chill, but I just felt I had some kind of fire in me to give. And I assumed that it was my, my story through music. Of course, I was very, I wasn't a, um, an advanced philosophical person like maybe a Bob Dylan or someone like that. I just knew there was something there. And so everything I did was, uh, it's like, in spite of myself, I still kept saying, I, for some reason, there was always that weird angel on my shoulder said, no, no, go for it. Yeah, you feel like crap. Go for it. Yeah, that lost out. Go for it. Yeah, that's probably not going to work, but go for it. It was always this, just do it. Just go for it. Just do, And just, I just, wherever that fire came from, and believe me, it, there's a move, a, a book out, um, Hillbillyology. I think it's a bestseller. And it's about a guy who goes off and I, I can't do the whole story, but he becomes this lawyer, but he was, he came out of, you know, white trash trailers and he goes back and his whole book is about why. Why does, and what happens is, we were talking about this book the other day, that's why I can relate to it. And I, and I said, you know, my life in Mimico was not white trash trailer, but it was absolutely all consuming. And what are you doing trying so hard? Hey, oh, you don't, oh, we're not good enough for you anymore. You know, I remember the first time I told a buddy of mine he couldn't smoke cigarettes in my house. He stopped being my friend. I'm like, really? Yeah. Like, I'm just, like, I'm trying to get fit and we're like 20. Yeah. I'm trying to get healthy and feels like, no, oh, dude, like I don't want to smoke in the house anymore. Oh, I'm not coming over, man. Really? That's how close we are. Our friend, like you can smoke outside. Not coming over if I can't smoke in the house. So it's, it's very, there's a lot of peer pressure to pull stay. an individual to stay. Yeah. Uh-huh. To pull an individual back into the family. They even make you feel like you're I had it. denying yeah. the family. Because then you put the onus on them to also look at themselves mm-hmm. and people don't like that if they're not ready. Well, that's just it. You illuminate, you know, what they may be inside know is wrong with the lifestyle or the, the, the perspective. 
And they don't like, nobody likes that. No. And if anyone ever alludes to me that I think I'm better than them, I have to really stop and go, I know I don't think I'm better than you. Do you think Mm -hmm. I'm better than you? Is this deeply rooted within your own insecurity? Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, people don't want to face insecurities if they're not ready. So it's hard when you want to leave one of those towns. Well, because you're deciding when you do that, that you're, you're making a moment of selfish decision. And I was saying this recently in life. I, th- I believe that there's three ways to live. Selfishly, community-oriented, or globally-oriented. The selfish part of living is something we all have to do and must, must do from time to time. A classic case would be a student in, in school, you know, student in university. They need to be selfish for this period of time. They need to focus on themselves. But if you stay like that, and eventually you're not giving back at all. you got to give back. Now, do you want to be soccer dad? Do you want to... Coach Little League, do you want to work on naturalizing your area environmentally? Do you want to bring fish back to a creek? Okay, that's all community-based, and God bless them. That's a great way to live. Or do you want to, you know, affect uh, more masses? You know, the John Lennon version. I don't want to affect ten people. I want to affect ten million. Mm-hmm. You know, the the and so I chose globally. I love com- community-wise. I just c- can't do it myself. But it's funny we're having this conversation because maybe as I'm saying this, I'm thinking is the reason why I can't really focus on my immediate community because I always go right back to where I started in Mimico and I don't want to become too, I don't want anybody to have their, and I mean this in the nicest way, tentacles on me to hold me back. And, you know, I've been able to see the world. Yeah. Now, did you want to do all of this with your music? At this point, are you at all thinking about encouraging people to get outside? No, I wanted to be a rock star. Wow. No, I, I wanted to be Neil Young. Yeah, that was that was absolutely for sure. But the love of nature never quite left. I still went fishing on weekends and different trips with my dad and some of the work buddies and and I and, and there was a piece of property we had up north and after the divorce it all got chopped up but I had a couple of acres that I was able to look after for and I would have party they were heavy drinking parties but I would always go up a day earlier and just hang out in nature by myself. So that remained in me and just, it just held off to the side while I tried to be a rock star. Okay. And what was the time period here? So we are now hitting into my twenties, early twenties. And I went to Fanshawe college for music production to learn. To, so now I'm trying to be responsible and I got, I did an audition and I got accepted. Thankfully they weren't doing it by grades at that point. They are now. I never would have got in now, but I got in. So I yeah. did an audition. So now I'm in college learning about the recorded, uh, recorded music industry and how to be a producer. So I'm still, you know, I'm still dreaming the dream, still thinking, all right, and at this point, I'm feeling like I've broken free. Now the rocket ship has left Mimico, Ontario. It's now broken free from, whoa, dude, why aren't you hanging out with us? It's broken from that now. But I always still kind of point, although I, I guess I started to get a little bit of mentorship then, but I, I still just didn't have, I didn't have the inner maturity to know exactly what to do, and I didn't have the external mentorship or guidance to know exactly what to do. It's understandable. Were you married in your early 20s? Nope, not at all. In the timeline then, okay, so you were playboy and all the way up. Uh, actually, in high school, not a chance. Uh, <laughs> Post high school is when I blossomed, yeah. And then sure. college, yeah, I took it to task. In college, I was out to break a record for sure. Okay. And in your late 20s, still music? So now we're into about the, actually, no, what happened was uh, mid 20s. It was 26, I was 26, 25, 26. And uh, the music of the 80s struck. I hated the music of the 80s. Oh, really? I just, Thompson Twins, Depeche Mode, Spandau <laughs> Ballet, Cindy Lauper. It just went on, but especially the synth bands. I just, 
hated it. You know, the fact that Duran Duran could get signed without ever having performed live, you know, and they, and stuff like that. I couldn't stand it. And I, and everybody was talking, all rock was dinosaur rock, rock is dead. All that sort of stuff was going on in the early to mid eighties. And I thought, well, I'm checking out because you know what? This is just not real music to me anymore. Sure, there were some bright spots. You too. A little bit of Gabriel stuff. There were some bright spots. But, you know, Phil Collins had gone all soft, you know, and it was just, nah, uh, prog rock was dead, except for Rush. Rush was now doing synthesizer. It, everything changed musically, and I'd had enough, and I was disillusioned. Yet this is why I always point back to the mentorship guidance thing, because I had a record label asking me to continually pitch them material. They wanted to ship it down to Springsteen to pitch it to him. But I, yeah, I was immature and I blew that opportunity. So then comes the music of the eighties and I'm like, nah, I'm out of here. And I literally, this was a, should I call it an epiphany? It was definitely an about face. And I stood there. I was working for the music channel, uh, our, you know, the Canadian version of MTV, much music. Yeah. And I looked out the window, it was pouring rain on a Tuesday. I'll never forget this. And I thought, well, what do I do now? This is all I've done for 10 years from figure about from the age of 14 to 25, 10, 11, 12 years. What do I do now? And there's only, only one word that just hit me like a bat on the head. Wilderness. Go to the wilderness. Wow. That okay. Was it. Was it to go find yourself? It was to reclaim what I'd left behind when I was 14. It was, it, you know, when I was a little kid, I was building little shelters out in the back. I was, I was pretending to be Tarzan. Lo and behold, if we look what I became with Survivor Man, I mean, who would have thought? And I didn't even know what it meant. What's that mean, wilderness adventure? I don't even, I don't know. I had no idea there was a, there was a whole community of canoeing going on and sea kayaking and kayaking. I had no idea. All these things were building a lot then too, right? These different companies now. It wasn't just scouts anymore. It wasn't just the odd kids camp. There were adult adventure things going on. So I started taking courses. I saw a little tiny ad, a little two-line ad for wilderness survival at Humber College, which is not far from where I lived. And I thought, oh, that sounds really good. Edible wild plants, wilderness survival. And I went to it, and that was it. I was smitten. I was bitten. I was in love with everything to do with survival and adventure. The first weekend, I built a shelter, and I slept in it. Pouring rain, covered in mosquitoes, and I was giddy because it was just like, wow. And then I realized I'm just playing. I'm just being Tarzan right now. But I'm an adult. It's way cooler. And you're not thinking career at this point. You're just living. No, I'm just living. I wasn't, I don't know that I've ever thought career. I was just, it was my payback to myself. It was time to experience. Now that took a couple of years. You know, that took a couple of years of quitting the music industry. I became a garbage man. Uh, my lowest moment was the first job I had after I left the music channel. I w- was in a 24-hour all-night uh, gas bar. And there I was after having hung out with Sting and Duran Duran and, and met all these cool people and produced rock television and worked with Rush. And there I was in an all-night gas bar as the attendant. Oh. And one of the guys from Much Music came in to get gas, and I just remember feeling the lowest in my life. I just thought, wow, you know, what have I done? Oh no, that's so devastating. It was hugely devastating. And I didn't, I didn't want that world, but I didn't know what world. And I needed money. You gotta eat, you know. So I didn't last long there, but I, I, then I, then I picked myself up and I started every job I did. So I did a garbage man job for five years off and on during this period. But I would, now I became very agenda driven in everything I did. So the garbage man job 
was because A, it paid well. B, it meant I was exercising every day, all day. Yeah, because you're got, in really good shape. I mean, you're 55. I'm probably, yeah, I'm probably better now, actually. <laughs> but uh, there was a, I'm certainly better now than I was at this stage we're talking about. And that was it. It was all about, you know, I'm getting paid to exercise. When I go out on the weekends and hike the trails and carry the canoes, I'm going to be that much stronger now because right. I was soft before that. So everything, I, when we'd go to the, I remember this, we'd get free construction boots, go to the construction boot truck. Everybody get their Greb Kodiaks and put them on with the steel toes. And I'd be like, have, have you got any, um, any shoes that I could double as hiking shoes? And I was like thinking, bush, bush, get out there. And I would get the steel toed hikers and you know, everything I could do. And that was it. That was the beginning of my, my adventure, life and adventure for sure. So does that bring us into early thirties? The problem with me is that, especially since that time, I've made my life very busy. So <laughs> we could go on forever because I make a lot happen in a short amount of time. I know. I Wikipedia'd you. you I honestly was like, I don't have five hours. How am I going to do this? I don't have five hours. <laughs> and Wikipedia is wrong about a few things. Apparently, I'm still married on Wikipedia, but there you go. So, so it was, no, I'm into, um, that was only a couple of years. But yeah, I suppose, I suppose suffice it to say... I made it through to, yeah, we're into my early 30, 30 now, 31 now, and I'm now a full-fledged guide, guiding for, for different uh, outdoor centers, running my own little survival company, teaching survival, lots of training, lots of guiding. It was a life in the bush. You never thought about going into hunting or fishing guiding? Oh, I did that too. You did? Oh, yeah. yeah. And how long did hunting, that... Hunting, fishing, boating, sea kayaking, canoeing, dog sledding, wilderness emergency care, survival, oh, God, you name it. Dog, yeah, I ran dog team for three years. Did you end up starting your own company? Oh, of course, yeah. Wilderness Spirit Productions. Is it still in? No, no. I still got the artwork, but no, it's a long time ago. Yeah, I had a couple of guys that I that I did the training with. We hooked up, and so uh, that was it. It was many years of just adventuring and teaching adventure. And I'm a good teacher, so I loved it. All in Ontario? Oh gosh, no. I don't know. It's all over, somewhat all over North America, really. Okay. Yeah. Any time in British Columbia? Yeah, a little bit. Um, trying to remember where. Boy, I did so many trips back then. I know that Ahani in the Northwest Territories, Yukon. Then I moved to the Yellowknife. I moved to Yellowknife for a while. Did you? Yeah. But before that, what happened along the, so, oh, the, we kind of completely missed one little misstep along the way. When I was 28, I got married. And when I was 29 and a half, I got divorced. That That's... was an 18 month oops. Lovely lady, lovely girl. Uh, but it was just sort of a, yeah, maybe we shouldn't have done this, eh? Yeah. So, hey, I love it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Canadian. Yeah, I know. I just realized I spoke in Canadian right there. Yeah. <laughs> now, where we are right now, if I say Oregon, then they definitely know it's Canadian. So, yeah, I got married to a lovely girl, but that lasted 18, 18 months. And that, and that kind of ended because my life was going to be all about adventure. And she wanted me to, she actually wanted me to stay being a garbage man. I remember that. I was like, really? And again, Tons of respect for garbage men. Believe me. To this day, I feel an affinity. If I see a truck go by, it's like, I should go hop on the truck for a block with those guys, help them out, you know? Because it was, it, it was, there, was there was a camaraderie and a community in it. Uh, oh, believe me. I've written short stories about being a garbage man because, wow, what goes on <laughs> as a garbage man is way out of what society thinks goes what on. What do you mean? Give me an example. Oh, boy, you name it. Um, I mean, there are garbage groupies. Uh-huh. Pardon? Garbage groupies. No. Yeah. Like a girl garbage. For the, for the ride to the groupie. dump and back. Yeah. And uh -huh. Just use it? your imagination. From oh there. my God. Okay. And there's, uh, there was, <laughs> you know, we used to have contests as who would uh, make the most tips over Christmas. And so, I mean, we'd been, we'd be paid 500 bucks to 
take like a whole shed and put it in the truck, which we weren't supposed to do, or refrigerators. Like you talk about, you know, the rules and regulations and stuff like that. Oh, when the guy's waving a hundred dollar bill and says, Hey man, can you take this car battery and throw it in? Oh, hundred bucks. Yeah. Sure everybody. Did. And they all did it. We all did it. So, but that goes on and on being a garbage man. But the best part was just being fit. You know, we just, we, oh, right. We'd have speakers on the back of the truck with like riders on the storm, really loud, blaring out speakers, be pouring rain. We'd have our shirts off going down the neighborhood, watching for the housewives, you know, just throwing garbage in. And oh, it's just like, it's just silliness. But, um, so that was a, that was a crazy period. So yeah. So through that late twenties was a real period of change, but focused change on being an adventurer until I got into my early thirties. And then I met uh, my second wife, Sue. And what happens with Sue? We, we met in an outdoor ed class. Oh, were you teaching it? Uh, no, I, we were both taking it actually. It was in uh, high tech winter camping. At this point, I was getting less of like my sub degree in, in um, outdoor education. So we hook up, Sue and I do. And, you know, uh, I kind of brought her along on a lot of the adventures that I was doing. I'm certainly, I, certainly I was an outlet for her to leave her existence in the city and, you know, take up with an adventurer. And she was uh, an adventuresome woman for me that, you know, would say yes to anything that involved being out in the bush. So we, we got involved and that led to the whole snowshoes and solitude period, which was a couple of years, three years, uh, 94, 95 is when that actually happened, where we went off and we lived in the bush for an entire year. This came about because I was saying to you that, you know, I pretty much had life in a, ca- in a, in a canoe, you know, basically put the canoe in in the spring, pull it out in the fall, hop into the dog team after that, you know. And I remember thinking, why do we have to come home? Why do we always have to come home? Can't we just stay out here? And she agreed with me. Yeah, can't we? And so why don't we just spend like a whole year living in the bush? And that's what we did. And that led to the Snowshoes and Solitude era where Sue and I spent a year living out in the Wabakimi Provincial Park area. And as if it was like 500 years ago, it was a very traditional method way of living. But the interesting part here is, and here's the, the first seed being sown, I thought this would be a really cool thing to film. And then I, I thought, well, you know, I used to do the rock videos way back when. I know how to run a camera and everything changed by this point. But so I grabbed a little Hi8 JVC camera, cheap little thing, and went off and I filmed our entire year. This is so much cooler than I thought. Oh, good. Yeah, well, because... It's good you know, that I'm cooler than I anybody, anybody who picks up a camera and starts filming themselves, especially in today's era with selfies and social media, you have to always wonder what their motives are. You really did mm-hmm. not set out to do this as a career at all initially. No, I was just... As I have always done, and we'll get to Survivor Man, I'm sure, as I've always done with Survivor Man, my motivation was teaching. Yeah. So I was teaching survival. Along the way, I'd see survival films, and I'd think, well, that sucks. Um, they're terrible, you know. They, if, they were, if they were put together by a uh, filmmaker type from a television network or something like that, then they didn't understand survival. If they were put together by the survival person, the filmmaking was horrible. And I remember thinking, you know, there needs to be some really good, solid instructional videos about survival. So we'll get to that because that led to Survivor Man. This is back in the day. I mean, you know, in the 80s, things were not know that good we're moving into the 90s now obviously but even then these types of we're still we're still talking vhs tape so sue and i did this year in the bush and i thought no matter what we've got a year out there i'm i'm sure i will be able to tell a story and tell our story and film it and have some fun doing this and so i endeavored to do that what did you learn in that year i learned a lot about connecting to nature about connecting to the planet about going with the flow 
and I've put that philosophy into everything I've ever done, including Survivor Man, that it's not about challenging nature or fighting it. It's about going with the flow of it. You know, you, you, you fish. You, you know exactly what, that, what I mean by that. You, you, can't fight, you can't fight the flow of the river. No. You know? So I learned a lot of that. That's probably the biggest thing. Uh, you know, it was a romantic year. It was, it was, had a lot of cool factor to it for sure. Doing something like that with a partner, you kind of got to be able to get along with somebody to do that for that long. No um, doubt. And we got along great back then. It was, it was, it was very good back then. So yeah. And, uh, I probably learned a bit more about filmmaking too, but I kept the filmmaking on the casual for sure. What was your shelter? First one was a teepee. Um, we built base, a basic teepee style shelter. You overwintered in a teepee? No, for the winter, what ended up happening was we had to come out of that year, I think three or four times by surprise, total surprise. The first time was when my father died. Oh, so we had to come sorry. out for that. Next time was when we both got Jardia. That's had a good reason. For that. Yeah. Next time was when uh, Sue had a miscarriage. Uh, we had to come up. So these things really interrupted what we were doing, trying to live in the teepee and so on. So when the fall came and we had a restock mission, two people that were scheduled to come in and everything, Doug and Fred came in. You know, Fred was really worried because we were, we were talking like this, you know, hey guys. Yeah, no, we'll get building, you know, for the winter soon. <laughs> Fred's like, you know, guys, you need to get, but we were so chilled. I just mean, so relaxed. Just, oh. And I mean, they seemed like they were talking a mile a minute and loud. It was just like, you know, <laughs> but Fred kind of instilled that, you know, like the snow's around the corner. So he left us a saw and an axe and we, we, we used some metal from that point on. So for the winter, we built a tiny little 10 foot by 10 foot log cabin. Great. And whose property are you on? We're, uh, what you call crown land in Canada. Okay. And you can build on that at that point? No, in we time? had permit though. You did. Yeah, we got to spend. Oh, yeah, I went legit on the whole thing. This is really incredible. Yeah. Okay. No, um, I mean, we weren't allowed to stay there. It was for the experiment, though. It was for the living there for a year and filming it kind of thing. And what was the experiment? Was it an internal experiment for yourself, or was it an actual project, like a film project experiment? I guess, I guess neither. I guess experiment's the wrong word, because it was neither that, nor was it a film project. It was, we just wanted to live for a year in the bush. Did you find that every time you came out of the bush, when you were forced to come out? That there was a major shock that went on in your system when you came back to society? The, not at the end of the year. Because, so I'm fast forwarding for you. At the end of the year, we'd psychologically geared up and prepared for it. Yeah. But the first one, especially the first time when we went out for my dad, we went literally from the shore of uh, our lake to my dad's bedside in the hospital in downtown Toronto in the one day. We connected everything up. And, and I literally was still in my boots and bush clothes. That was strange because the city, you know, it was just, that was really shocking. But that's because it was such a sh an abrupt turn of events. Do you have any advice? Because I, I spend stints as well where I'm in the bush for, you know, a certain amount of time. And it's kind of embarrassing, but I'm going to admit it here. When I come out, I go through a weird depression for probably a week and like lineups give me crazy anxiety cars. I, I forget how to drive and I, the, the honking, I, I can't, I cannot handle it. And it makes me want to hide under a rock. Do you have any advice for somebody who gets out of the bush and they go through that bit of shock? Yeah, you've got to, you kind of got to let go because I think the shock starts from 
why the fuck is it like this when mm-hmm. I just came from that? And that's our fight instinct. Like, oh, why are you scared? Look at that. And, oh, and I was, I was just on a river. Went, look at that. God, that's loud. And, that's me. That you just described my yeah, entire head. Yeah, you have to, you have to kind of admit that it is what it is, and that you are damn lucky to get those moments on the river. Yeah, you know that's and get back to as much as possible. But there is no real solution. It's just going. You know what? It is what it is. Okay, so you put that year in. Then what happens? Well, we came out pregnant. For one. So were you guys trying to get pregnant? We just didn't not try. We didn't try or not try. But yeah, it was a kind of a joint decision, sort of like, you know, but I'm pretty confident I wanted kids maybe more than she did, but you know, I mean, it's her choice too, so. Yeah. Um, How long did she stay in there pregnant? I'm asking for selfish reasons. Oh, not long. Maybe a month. Okay, so she didn't do the first two trimesters or anything in there? No, no, no. Damn, I thought I was going to get a free ticket here with my husband. <laughs> well, but she was going to, and then she had the miscarriage, and I can tell if this probably bodes better on your side than his, but the miscarriage was a horrible affair. Um, she started miscarrying, of course, at the end of the day as the sun's setting, so you're not going to get any flights in now. I mean, well, you got to picture us. We're, we're hundreds of miles north on a tiny little frozen lake in the middle of the Canadian northern wilderness. With a radio, you got to hook up to a 12 volt battery and, you know, less calling base camp, less, you know, uh, and, um, calling here on air and sort of thing. And she started, and we happened to have a bucket, uh, from the stuff that, that Fred left behind and she basically bled into a bucket, you know, uh, for most of the evening. And it was a decision to, then we were thinking like, cause we were so healthy. It's like, well, if you take any drugs like Demerol, what's that going to do? Can you do that? You know, and we're like, oh, I don't know. And then I just looked, and there was one moment I looked at her and I thought, that's enough pain. Take the Demerol. And she was losing the baby anyway. So um, it was basically that with what was going into the bucket. And I thought, you know what? No more. You need to take. So she took the Demerol, got a little bit of sleep that night, and then the plane came in in the morning. Oh, how much stress is that on you guys? Horrifying. It was minus 35 degrees in in a Celsius in a January night frozen. It was so incredibly cold and we're in this tiny little log cabin with this little tin wood stove you know um we're used to the cold and everything but it's different when you're sick and you're ill yeah you know you're healthy and strong it's like so 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 you could freeze water on the floor who cares but when you're sick it's terrible it's you know it's horrible did you guys have any other real dangers any bears or i mean i'm sure everybody asks you about bears but on that particular trip any really scary situations none no Coming up, Les and I dive behind the scenes of the television world. Again, thank you to Nemo for helping make this episode possible. With so much outdoor equipment on the market, I was always intimidated when it came to choosing the best product for my excursions. From durability to functionality, I am regularly impressed by the fine-tuned details. Go to www.nemoequipment.com and use the code ANCHORED17 for a 25% discount off your first order. So what happens after that year? Well, we go into, I'll put it this way, Les goes into a seeking of what do I do next. It's really, how do you come off of a year living alone in the wilderness with your partner and it being an amazing year? How do you come off of that? Fortunately, enter my old performance ego. Now it's like, you know, well, I'll rise to the challenge. Again, it's that old voice of don't give up, keep going for it. At this point, I really have nothing in life zero in life. I'm 30, 
30-something, 3, 34, and I've got nothing in life. Zero. I own nothing. You know, and we'd come out of the bush and we're pregnant. So I start doing odd jobs. I'm painting barges in Tamagami and we are running dog teams. We go back to teaching some adventure and stuff like that. And we were looking after a dog team. And I remember that's when I, I, uh, there was a guitar sitting in that house and I hadn't touched my guitar for almost 10 years. I picked it up and instantly wrote a song. And then I, there was a blues jam at the club in Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories, the Cave Club, the world's most northerly blues club. And I went and I jumped up on stage with a, I, I said, okay. And I went and bought a C harmonica. I went and I said, can you do Mustang Sally? And so uh, in G. Oh, so, and the minute I started playing on stage, I, I remember it just, it took me back to when I was 23. And I thought, wow, I've really missed this. So I started playing again. So now I'm feeding the family, putting diapers on the babies because she got pregnant again by singing in the club on the weekends, you know, singing Cat Stevens and Tragically Hip and Neil Young in the clubs on the, on the weekends, getting, you know, 350 bucks for a weekend to, to put food on the table and buy diapers. And, and, uh, but in the meantime, I got to get this film made. Yeah. You've got all this footage. Yeah. I got all this footage from Snowshoes and Salt. I got to make this film. Probably that this was definitely, I think now if I look back, you know, you can look back in hindsight, I think probably the beginning of the end of our relationship, probably its seed started here because I became a, an ambitious individual wanting to accomplish things. And I think Sue wanted to go back to our old lifestyle, just hanging out and just always just, but there was never any real money in that. The life was as rich as you can imagine, but there was no financial security or future of being a guide. Could you live in the bush with no money? It, with it, this problem is, is no. everything changes with children. No, you can't. You know, and I'll take that to task with anybody. And like, oh, sure, you can. You should get. No, you can't. You show me how you can because you can't. You, you. Uh, oh no, my uncle. Uh, your uncle. Your uncle comes into town. He's got some social security checks that he gets to cash once a year. Like, there's always something to do with money. Uh, either that, or you're. You know, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, you got me on a tangent here, but for, no, I like it. I'm, I've always wondered this. I'm happy I asked. Well, for example, you know, people always point to what I do as Survivor Man, and then they talk about Dave Pronicky and the 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 Wilderness Man or whatever. You know, about him living in the bush for 35 years alone and creating. And he, he was an engineer, so he built this place and everything. And I'm, and they're like, oh, that's so cool. You know, like yeah, you're like him. And I'm like. The guy lived alone for 35 years in the bush. He was a freak, you know? And when he was sick, he had to come into town and go to the hospital. I mean, I'm like people. I'm not going to live alone in the bush for 35 years. And in this, all these shows that have come out and everything, you know, uh, whatever they're called, Life in the Wilderness, Alaska, all that sort of stuff. There's a lot of nonsense on those shows. It's all so much staged and set up. Oh, I don't believe anything on television anymore. Uh, I'm over it. It's very disheartening. Yeah. That's why I'm off television. That's why I'm off television. Yeah. Props. Well, I think... uh, I think that that whole same mythology was part of, you know, can you just go off and live in the bush? I encourage anybody to go off and do it as an experience. Go live in a log cabin. Go build a log home. Go live in a canoe for a year. Do all those things. But sooner or later, if you're a normal human being, you, you want to come back. You want to see some family, some friends, and this and that. You don't have to stop the wilderness lifestyle, but you do have to be responsible to yourself. And certainly if you have kids. A hundred percent. You know, I don't prepare you this at all. This is, you sound like a responsible adult. You have to be. And yeah. that's what happened was I became very, um, thoughtful of this fact. I'm a father now with two kids. And so we tried a little bit of homesteading, thought we were maybe going to go down that road and be like the hippie homesteaders and all of this. 
But, you know, something's got to put gas in the van, as junky as the van is, you know. There's a lot of, I think a lot of people fool themselves. They think if they buy an older vehicle like a VW microbus that they're somehow more earthy. It's like, it's a vehicle. It's a truck. It's a car. In fact, if it's older, it's probably worse for the environment. We lead these lives of conflict no matter what. And I was beginning to learn that, you know, you can't just go off and be in the bush. You know, you can experience it for a while. But it's not going to be forever. And money's going to... We were thinking about what to do financially while we were living the year in the bush in those last two months. It almost became all-consuming, especially in the last 40 days. It's like, what do we, when we get out, we're going to have to... How are we going to put gas in the car? How are we going to pay rent somewhere? You know, all these things. Yeah. Because you, you didn't have to pay for food. Were you hunting your own food with a gun? Were you using a bow? Were you trapping? What were you doing? Fishing, gathering, and then we had a supply of traditional food. Traditional food being? Like beans, peas, maple syrup. Okay. Everything, did, because originally we started as if it was like a life of um, an aboriginal culture, so like 500 years ago. So we had food that that pertained to that era while we were spending that year in the bush. Did you hunt any deer or any red meat? No. No. Oh. Because, well, the thing is we were starting it with all in traditional supplies. And we learned something really quick. And it's, I talk about it on the movie, and Snowshoe and Solitude, which is the film I produce. Where can people it. find that movie? Oh, online, my, uh, lestroud.ca, my, my shop page kind of thing. To live a traditional and primitive lifestyle in the bush requires a community. You know, if people were sent off on their own or even as a couple, it was considered banishment and sure death. So think of this. These are people who live in the bush anyway. You'd think, oh, like Ishi, you know, they're all going to, oh, they can, they can survive anywhere. No, they couldn't. Because one person makes the snowshoes. Someone else makes the bows and arrows. Someone else, or bows, someone makes the arrows. Some women make the baskets. These guys gather the fish. Those guys are the ones who get the meat. These ones who, who are gathering the blueberries. Those are the ones who are doing the ulicon uh, uh, fish. It, it goes on and on. Community. I never really thought about that. And you're right, because I read a lot of those books. And the community is everything. Everything. Ishii is an isolated situation of a guy who almost died, you know, down, I think it was California. You know, those situations of the, the lone surviving, you know, native in the wilderness and that we could even emulate that, it's ridiculous. No, it, it, it's a community. And Sue and I learned that, you know, that while we were out there, it was tough, man. It was hard being two people. Hard, hard work. Just a day of gathering berries and you're exhausted. And yeah. you know, so many other things you got to do. Yeah, so coming out of all of that, you know, was about getting a grip on reality and what to do now. And I spent four to five years trying to find myself and trying to finish this film. And thank God for uh, Tony Armstrong. He, re he had a TV show series called Cottage Life Television, and he allowed me to edit in his edit suite and taught me some editing and, and gave me free reign. And that started to give me a different job than painting barges in Tomogamy. Now he's like, well, why don't you grab a camera and come be second cam camera for us next weekend? We're filming the Smith's Cottage in Burke's Falls. Oh, okay. Uh, you film all the nature stuff. You're a nature boy anyway. Oh, okay. And I go off and I'm filming nature. Thing. I got it made. He's paying me 280 bucks or whatever it was. And I'm, I'm running a camera filming friggin' blue herons. Sweet. And so now... We're cycling back and circling back to that little boy who wants to be a National Geographic photographer. And we're, we're coming full circle, except I'm almost 40. I am dumbfounded. I had no idea. There's more to me than you thought, right? Yeah. And that's Hopefully. Why, that's why we... Cause Not just a shallow shell of a man. No. Well, we met doing that Lexus thing. And, you know, we just didn't have time to talk at all. It was chaos. You were busy getting stung anyway by hornets. So. Oh, you were. <laughs> 
I can't, who walks into a hornet's nest? Well, you did, apparently. It was the most horrifying experience yeah. of my life. Oh, yellow jackets are nasty. I've, I've had three occasions in my life of stirring up a yellow jacket nest, and I'm pretty sure almost every single time I was in shorts and shirtless, and I've never been stung. What? Because no. they were in my hair. They were in my I shirt. Know. You don't know this. So after I left and I went back to the airport, I counted 40, or I had the guy who drove me count 42 bites oh, from the base of my stings. neck down yeah. to my shoulders. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, a yellow jacket doesn't sting you once. They bite. They I'm allergic keep, to bees. Keep doing this. So I kept thinking that I was going to die. Ah, uh, different venom. And then I don't know if you were, oh, I don't know if you saw it. I was in the water. Yeah, you jumped down in the water. Yeah, and I'm squealing. And one thing I learned is when you've been attacked, by anything, there's nobody there who wants to be your friend. Huh. Like you know what I mean? There, everybody, no one was in the water helping me. There no, was no. a whole, there were a whole lot of cameramen. They going, don't want a single Ooh. hornet getting off of you and onto them. <laughs> but yeah, so we didn't get time to talk at all. Uh, I'm really happy I was able to make this work. Okay, now your video that you made at this point, are you taking some of the experience that you're getting with this? What's the guy's name you're working? Oh, Tony Armstrong at Cottage Life Television. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm combining finishing the film Snowshoes and Salted with learning from Tony about editing, getting time on a camera filming for him different things in Cottage Life Television. And this was setting in motion this idea that I could be uh, an outdoor filmmaker, an adventure filmmaker, you know, Warren Miller. Uh, and, and it gave me the idea that, okay, all those I- other ideas I had a couple of years before while teaching survival and seeing crappy films, like, I could fix this myself. I remember thinking in like 87, when I first got into survival, just before that, I remember seeing a film and I remember thinking, what if I were to film myself surviving? That would be able to teach these skills really well. And I stored that for a good 10 years in my brain. So now here I am with Tony learning all this stuff and doing ostensibly filmmaking. And it started to occur to me, this could be actually a pretty decent career. The money's better than painting barges. And I'm in the outdoors. I'm filming nature. Hell. Hello, this is going to be good. Right. You know, now I can put diapers on my babies and 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 uh, and feed the household and be doing something that's pretty damn cool. So that was kind of where it started. And then what do you do from there? Well, I finished the film. That's another real. This was the next important epiphany-like moment in my life. I mentioned when I quit music and got into adventure when I was in my mid twenties. So when I was, I think I was almost forty. While I was making snowshoes and salted i was getting back into music so i'm still playing the gigs in the on the weekend in the bars during the week i'm going and working for tony armstrong doing filming and, and editing snowshoes and salted on my own so i'd work all day for him and then i'd edit all night on the film i mean i was busting it you know busting and moved completely and so i, I meet a, a guy named ian oj in new liskard ontario through this that and the other i end up saying hey can you know we were buddies he had a studio i'd like to I've got, you know, songs and stuff. Can I, re- so I, now I'm starting to record my songs. So, so one day I'm sitting there and in my hand, I have the finished DVD, sorry, VHS tape of Snowshoes and Solitude and the finished CD, my first ever proper recorded bunch of music. And I'm holding them both. And I'm thinking I was, I was absolutely euphoric. It was the first time in my life I'd ever completed anything. Oh. Ever. And both things you're passionate about. Yeah. And I just, I remember thinking, 
Oh, I like this feeling. <laughs> I want to feel this again and again and again. And I've really been on a mad quest to have the euphoria of completion ever since then. I mean, witnessed by what I've been able to uh, achieve and put together, I guess. Is that where Survivor Man enters? So, yeah, what, what happened was... Um, I love this whole idea of filming our wilderness adventures. And so I was developing a show called Wilderness Family. We were going to sea kayak the coast of Canada and film me and, and Sue with all the, with the kids and all this adventure stuff. And I did do some films about us adventuring, uh, trying to work this all in. And then I started combining my music with this footage, creating some music videos that were nature videos, but it was my music. Uh, recorded properly, and so that, by the way, was the was the also the genus of the, of of this other big life I'm living now, which is performance and music and music and video together. So I'm doing all this, and that's when I thought, what about that idea I had about filming myself survive? And it was kind of just quaint at the moment when I thought it. And this is you know something that I if I do like a keynote or something, I talk about this moment. I I remember, and this is all about having faith in yourself, because I remember running my idea of what if I what if I went out and filmed myself surviving like wouldn't that be wouldn't that be pretty cool like you know it could be like a tv series or something like and I remember my buddies who were in the industry laughing at me audibly and they made um and I remember thinking huh fuck you guys this is a good idea and you're wrong yeah and two weeks later I'd signed it to Discovery Channel a year later they were both asking me for a job <laughs> what'd you say no <laughs> Because I knew they didn't have vision. That thing right there, when I got Survivor Man signed, stopped everything else in my life. I remember, in fact, I distinctly remember signing the contract and realizing, wait a minute. I know what I'm doing now for the next eight months. Whoa. (laughs) I've never known what I was doing for the next 30 days, never mind the next eight months. This is... Do I like this or do I actually kind of didn't like it? I'm like, this feels like somebody owns me. No, that, yeah. you know, it's like I'm part, I'm working for the man now. Oh no, that wasn't it. And I, I learned that no, that I still control my own universe, but I, but now I knew what I was doing. And the first time that it was, I knew what I was doing for one full year, which basically was season two of Survivor Man. I remember thinking that moment through too, going, I know what I'm doing for the next 12 months of my life. That's freaking unbelievable because I haven't had not had that since I was in school. How many episodes per season? No such thing as a season with Survivor Man. And okay. that gets us to a whole other story. But in the end, basically, it was how many could I do? Because remember, as you know, I really did them and I really do them. So they're hard on me. Yeah. Like how long are you in the bush for at a time? Well, it's three days, five days, seven days, 10 days, uh, depending on what I'm, where I'm going. Uh, but if I were to go to, at the time or even now, if I were to go to my survival cronies and say, hey, we're going to do a week long in the bush surviving. Yeah, let's do it. We're going to do six of them this year. Yeah, I'm out. Nobody would ever do it. We did one in a year is all we ever did, you know. So now the network asking for more and more. I mean, we're jumping the game a bit here, but the network asking for more and more. I just couldn't give them more and more because I did it for real. If someone hadn't seen the show, could you explain to them what you do? You go out in the bush, you've got nothing. Yeah. The basic premise of Survivor Man remained the same. What do you do if you're caught out in the wilderness in a compromising situation with little to no gear and you have to survive so many days? And I would go out, no camera crew. We'd film the first day together. You know, we'd, we'd do an opening or something like that. And then they'd leave me. 
and I'd have, you know, whoever, however many days left, what can I gather? What can I catch? What can I fish for, hunt for, trap, pick, you know, where, what shelter can I make? How am I going to get fire? Um, which methods? And what if I have some gear? What if I have a little bit of gear? What if I have some gear, but it's broken? What if I have some gear, but it's not good? Can I rip apart something? All, you know, all this stuff became the fun part of creating Survivor Man. But in the end, it was all about what do you do now? In places that you'd been before? Oh gosh, no. No. And that was the beauty of it. Um, the initial, the initial thing that I did was for a network up in Canada and they had a, uh, there was a show called The Daily Planet. Yeah. Still on. And, um, the way we did it, they gave me, like, they said, like, I call, so backtracking, I made a cold call. So here I am, you know, father of two, scraping by, learning some editing, finished my film and my CD, trying to pitch adventure films, and now I got this idea, which was going to end up to be Survivor Man. But initially, my idea was just, I just want to teach these skills. So I call up Daily Planet and I say, hey, Here's my idea. Alone, a week, and guess what? No camera crew. I can film this myself. Oh, you, oh, you want to see how I can film? Here, watch this sh- film called Snowshoes and Saltitude. This was, uh, I just made this. Oh, you like it? And you want to do it? Great. Okay. And like, uh, they paid me $11,000. That's what I made that whole year. $11,000. And I was glad to make it. And I went off into the bush and I filmed my my week in the bush and I came back and what they did was they had me edit it into five minute chunks. They trusted me for editing because I did Snowshoes and Saltitude. Edited it into five minute chunks and then they showed them Monday. Then Tuesday was the next day. Thursday, Wednesday, Thursday. And so each day was a new five minute segment. Oh. At the end of the week, their ratings were so good. They were the best ratings they'd had in three years. They took my five segments and on Sundays, they always show the best of the Daily Planet. Sunday was just all me. All five segments lined up in a row. And that went so well, they said, what else can you do? I said, uh, winter? Yes, do a winter one. Okay. <laughs> Off I go, I do a winter one. Who's Same choosing thing the again. places? Are you choosing your own totally. locations? Yeah. And that's never changed. I was very, very much at home doing it because I was in Northern Ontario and that was what I knew really well. And then after the winter one took off so well, I thought, well, this could be a series. Now I'm thinking like a TV producer and I'm thinking, or actually more like an opportunist. And I'm thinking uh, sheepishly, you know, I could um, I could go around the world and do this if you like. I mean, we did this here, summer, winter, but I could do like jungles and, you know, mountains. And inside I'm thinking, this is going to be awesome. And eventually uh, I got the ear of someone at, uh, at the right network and they said yes. And then I got the ear of someone at American Network and they said yes. So the budget went uh, from 11000 on the summer stranded to 17,000 when I did the winter one. And then when I signed to the television network to 27,000, now I can afford a, a, a an editor, not yeah. just me anymore. I can get a real editor working with me. Okay. And then the Americans signed on and the budget jumped to 87,000. Now shit. I can afford a, someone else to book my flights for me and someone to call ahead and get a film permit. And now I got a team and survivor man was born. Is the network at this point trying to, tell you where to go or are you still choosing where you're going this was you know i landed the sweetest deal ever in in documentary tv production i think (laughs) they didn't know diddly squad about survival nothing i could have told them the sky is pink they would have believed me and so i chose and decided everything but this was another not that there wasn't to be a lot of painful professional business lessons for me to learn along the way 
probably, though, the reasons I learned that lesson was because right in the beginning, let's face it, I'm not a 22-year-old now. I'm 42 now, somewhere around there. And I am a man, and a guy, a man with an agenda, and a man who's like, I'm not going to... I'm not going to be somebody's minion or somebody's toy and, and be paraded around it. Uh-uh. So I learned how to swim that swamp. And bottom line is I maintained control. I made sure I did. What do you mean by there's no amount of episodes as such per season? Well, because normally a season compri- is comprised of 13 episodes yeah. or 26 if you double it up. I, there's no way I could do 13 times in a row a weeks uh, starving out in the <laughs> jungles. It's not a chance. It'd, kill, it'd be it's just it'd be devastating to my body. It's not realistic. No. Sure, we call them seasons. They're called seasons on the DVD. But the way they were spread out throughout the years was it became based on whenever I signed the next contract. Okay, yeah. that's totally fair. Now, did you at any point have a life-threatening experience where you really didn't know if you were going to make it? You know, for the most part, the easy answer is no, because the reality was, let's remember my past. Like everybody else who came along, I was not a TV host trying to be a star. Can I ask you about that real quick? Sure. The rumor, and this has nothing to do with you. There's nothing real quick about this answer, but go ahead. (laughs) This has nothing to do with you, and we can take it as far as you want. But I remember for a long time, I was always, you know, there were a handful of survivor sorts of personalities out there. And when I heard of a particular personality who was staying in a hotel, but making, you know, across the road, but making it look in the filming like he was staying in the rugged forest, I lost a lot of respect for a lot of personalities. And I really started to question who was real. Do you have an opinion on that? Did that really happen? Wow. Um, this is so easy to answer. First of all, did you question if I was real? I questioned if everybody was real. So he did question me. That was one of the hard parts was people would question me after that. Yeah. So here's how it went down. Survivor Man is now on for a couple of years and it's a big hit. Networks want, as since you already set up the perfect segue. Yeah. We need more episodes, Les. We need 13 episodes. We need 26 episodes. This is a hit. Kill yourself. We'll you know, get rich doing this, Les. So take a crew with you. Have them build your show. Stay in a hotel, Les. You don't need to keep hurting yourself like this. For goodness sakes, just say And I remember her saying, no one will know. So this is a particular executive producer with a particular network. And they courted me for a year with fine dining and everything, trying to persuade me to cheat Survivor Man. Nope, not going to do it. She's like, nope, you don't understand. That's not what I'm doing here. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. All right. So they went off, they hired Bear Grylls, they created Man vs. Wild. Now what people don't realize is that first season that they did Man vs. Wild was completely set up as if he was absolutely doing it. They totally intended to lie it out. And um, they got caught in a little bit of a way. Oh, he stayed. He never not stayed in a hotel, ever. He didn't sleep in any one of those shelters that he built. Um, and uh, so... Here's something people don't know. When that whole little little scandal got out, they pulled all the shows off air, took them back into the edit suite. They took out everything that could be considered as damning, re-edited them, put them back out on air saying, oh, no, disclaimer, 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 disclaimer. We always meant to tell you. We figured you knew, didn't you? I mean, oh, oh yes, he has a crew. Yeah, that's awful. They tried to get away with it. In fact, I know an executive that actually left the network, and he said one of the reasons I left was because the way they treated you, Les. Because they took your show, they took it into the boardroom, and they said, okay, uh, this is where we want Bear to go, all these places where Les Stroud has gone. 
So that's how this all started. That's so disheartening. It, and for a while, I was very self-righteous about that and very disheartened. And, tr- and then I didn't give a crap after a while. I just, enough is enough, which led me on to doing the Beyond Survival series. But So that's how it really went down. And if people think that Dual Survive is real, get a grip. Completely staged and set up all the time. Which is not a comment on Matt Graham, who's an excellent survival instructor. It's not even a comment on Cody, who was the barefoot dude, who was a good survival instructor. But the show is as fake as the day is long. And they can say, oh, well, it's not about, it. no, 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 you try, you st- watch the show. You know that there's enough, I'll have to say it this way, enough stupid people out there that aren't paying attention that think you're really doing what you're doing. The, the show is crafted that way. So totally. unless you miss that blip of a disclaimer off the top, you think the dude's really going through this stuff. Case in point back on Mr. Grills, you watch uh, the interview of him when he did his little uh, tour in Australia and he's speaking to a big crowd and then cute little kid gets up and says, well, can you tell us what's it like to sleep in a sheeping bag and everybody laughs and he goes, ha 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 and he says something humorous and charming and funny because he's very charming and and all of this great but you'll notice something just like he did on david letterman he never answered the question because he never did actually sleep he just needed to charm this little boy and never answered the question because he never really did it same thing with david letterman he asked him outright did you mean to mislead audience oh you know david well it's not like that, you know, when you get on these and deflect, deflect like a beautiful politician. But, you know, that gets us into a whole other subject matter on the, you know, when, cause, because they turned what I was trying to do, which I thought was beautiful documentary television, documentary work into reality TV. And I hate when my show is called a reality TV show. It was never a reality TV. It was, a, it's a documentary series. And I went through some real crap to do what I did. And sure, there was parts of me that you can hear my, the tone of my voice right now that there's bitterness about, hey man, I'm really going through this shit. And these guys are laughing their way to the bank. I got over it. You know, I got over the whole thing. Uh, sure, you give me a beer or three and, I'm, and I'll vent. But other than that, I can sleep at night. I've got my integrity and I know what I've done. And um, the only kudos I'll ever give back to these guys is that at least they promoted an adventurous lifestyle. And that was, that's, that's cool, you know. I totally respect everything you just said. <laughs> and honestly, one day when we have more time, I'll tell you my television stories. They mirror yours. It's sad. It's, yeah. it's a sad situation. What's the comedian said about reality te- television? It's a bunch of stories written by people who aren't writers, acted out by people who aren't actors, based on situations that would never happen. And it's just like, yeah. And that's what became of the survival. So I get asked about the survival genre a lot. I mean, it started with Survivor Man. It really did. On the back of Survivor Man is where it started. Uh, um, notwithstanding the CBS Survivor series, that was completely different. And then it got morphed into what Bear and Dual Survival did. Now it's morphed into, into Alone and Naked and Afraid. Problem here is, is are the people on Alone really suffering? Yeah, they actually are really suffering. Problem is, they're not suffering realistically. They're still forced into situations that aren't, that's not real, really survival situation. This is just, let's watch some people suffer. <laughs> drama, drama, drama. Drama, drama, drama. And uh, in fact, that was one of the things that led early in those conversations with the executive producer was, we want to inject a bit of drama into this less. She had a British accent. She was from Britain. Yeah. And hence, that's why she knew Bear. And I remember staring her down and said, okay, so help me out here. You got a guy, me. I'm alone in the Amazon jungle completely no no touchstone no way to get out filming myself alone for seven days amongst every poisonous creature there is and you with no food and no water and no crew you you don't think that's dramatic enough huh (laughs) and i just never bought it i said tough 
That was my answer. And so I was a spy, I, I was a hit, which made me a slight thorn in the side of various networks because they wanted more, more, more. And I, I couldn't realistically do it. I love that you stay true to yourself. Well, I got to, I got to sleep at night. I'm not saying I'm, I'm a purist. I'm not saying I'm, I'm righteous. I'm not saying that I haven't, you know, screwed up and made some mistakes. I definitely have along the way, but I've got to be able to look at myself in the mirror again. Why? What was the, what was the whole point of this? To teach the survival skills? Yes, that was the subtext. But you know, the real baseline of Survivor Man was to connect people to nature. That's it. Which you've done. That's what I wanted to do. And then you left television. I actually didn't know that you left television. Well, I kind of, sort of, maybe, almost, but not really haven't. Uh, I'm, I'm just out of the game recently in some respects, but if other stuff came along, like I said, I got a performance ego, so I still love being a ham. I mean, I'm, I've been reading for, for different uh, uh, fictional roles, actually. Oh, wow. And getting some callbacks, which is pretty cool. In fact, apparently I came really close in, to losing uh, and was losing a, uh, a role to Gary Oldman, which is like the coolest thing ever to say, yeah, I lost out to Gary Oldman. Because <laughs> it's like, you know, it's Gary Oldman. But um, so I'm working on that, having a lot of fun with it. But... Um, me being earnest also is a problematic thing for where television went. Yeah. Many, many, uh, uh, an EP has, an executive producer has said, we don't want anything too earnest less. Ah, so you want bullshit then. Is that what I'm reading here? Yeah. And that's why I couldn't sign a deal either. Everyone wants bullshit. That's what they want. And being a woman, the drama they want, it's an entirely different form of drama. But the bullshit, I just can't do it. I am who I am. I do what I do. And if you want something else, then hire somebody else. Well, and that's the way the TV world works. Yeah. So you're going into music then right now. Yeah. So it's been, I mean, it has been 16 years of Survivor Man. 16 years. Yeah. Off and on. I mean, I did the Survivor Man Beyond Survival series where I did all the ceremonies and, and survival of native cultures and back to Survivor Man again and then go through a divorce and then, you know, the dark years of that and then making peace with Survivor Man after not having wanted to do anything with it. Now making peace. with it. So it all came back. And now I'm in what I think is one of the most wonderful positions in life in that I'm kind of cherry picking and trying to have my, my cake and eating it too, or having my cake and eating it too. So I'm launching SMTV or I've launched smtvnetwork.com. And that is the home for all things Survivor Man, including new material. But now there's no gatekeeper. There's no network gatekeeper to tell me. Yeah. I remember back in the days when I like, you know, I just had to do so much placating to get, and I still did my whatever I wanted anyway, but you still have to placate, you know, for the yeah. sake of the phone call. Um, no, we just do what we want. And, I, and so if I want to do a show and it's a brilliant edit at 18 minutes, it's an 18 minute show. If it's a brilliant edit at 90 minutes, it's a 90 minute show. And, uh, you know, if I want to do more Bigfoot, do more Bigfoot, more music, more music. So smtvnetwork.com is a big launch for me. And then musically, I never stopped. So all through this period of Survivor Man, I started recording CDs. And I'll make sure you leave this interview with a bunch in your hand. But I, yes, I've, I've um, been recording and have to admit getting better and better and better. And they're sounding stronger. And uh, to this point now where I'm, I'm being produced by Mike Klink, who is responsible for Guns N' Roses, Metallica's best work, you know, Aerosmith, Frank Zappa, Paul Anka, the list goes on. And uh, this music I'm putting it now is very strong. I'm hopefully signing to a, a new record deal or a record deal period will be the first one in my life. So I'm sitting in this place where, remember, I go back to what I was telling you about holding the CD and the DVD in my hands and that euphoric feeling of completion. The joy of completion is what I call it. So now I'm the completion is 
less dependent upon higher-ups and executive producers saying yes. Thank you, world of the internet. Yeah, right? It's yeah. changing everything. It's like you with this podcast. Yeah. Any, you know, 20 years ago, you need to be having some executive producer at a radio station agreeing to do this as a radio show with you. Then it would come with all of its parameters. Yeah. Well, it can only be this long. <laughs> it can only be these subject matters. You can't, can't say this. can't say this. We've got to use these sponsors, so we need you to push this sponsor, and you can't talk about that sub uh, topic or that item because that's a different sponsor. You'd have to do that. But now we have... The, you know, what we're doing online. We have smtvnetwork.com. We have your podcast. We have me launching musical material and, and doing my own marketing and social media. There's a lot of control there. The yeah. cream will rise to the crop. There's a lot of crap rising to the, that's around too. The but authenticity is rising. Yeah. Cause there's no more ownership. I don't do ownership well, nor do you, it sounds like. Well, I, I think what happens, it's a, it's a double sided coin. On one hand, people are very free to lie. And put out a lot of bullshit and oh, right. <laughs> fake it really, really quite a bit. And Photoshop and things like that help them do that a lot. After Effects and so on, the software for editing. But on the other hand, if you're not careful, someone's going to call you out. It gets out. Cool. Yeah. It gets out. Yeah, remember remember what the executive producer said way back when? Less. No one will know. And I remember then thinking, you know, this is thing that's just... And this was the beginning of... I don't think social media had even taken yet. So they didn't see the firestorm that was waiting around the corner. So they eventually launched Bear Grylls, and meanwhile, social media had taken off. Now people can go, hey, here's a picture of him, you know, his location. Uh, look over here. It's a highway. You know, so social media uh, was not there before, but it is now. And you, people like you and myself can make use of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm loving it. Keeps us real keeps it real. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got to get you to the airport. Was there anything that I didn't cover that's huge in your life? Well, I think the biggest thing of all is more in the philosophy of things. And that is that the reason why Survivor Man was a burning goal within me, I'm quite certain now that I'm speaking this to you and thinking back, you know, if you go back to when I was a kid, I just loved nature in some weird way so passionately and I didn't know why. And then a Survivor Man... I just wanted people to get back out in the bush and go fishing and hiking and hunting and camping and canoeing and dogs. I just wanted that really badly. So that kept, has kept burning inside of me. And as, you know, when I had my dark years of Survivor Man, maybe going through the divorce, maybe when they put, you know, things like Man vs. Wild on air and I was dejected about that, I would always think, you know, somewhere out there, there's one kid. And he's hanging off everything I'm saying right now. So suck it up, Stroud, and make it good. Because this kid might get out into the bush because of you. Of course, I know that there's been thousands that have gone out in the bush because of Survivor Man. I get their, their emails and their notes, and I always answer them. So it's the same thing with my music. All of my lyrics and all of the songs that I write, if they're not covers, or as well as when they're covers, have to do with either celebrating nature Maybe it's a bit of a warning about something. Maybe it's a call to action. But one way or the other, all of my my music, oh, of course I write love songs, but I don't put that stuff out so much. Who wants to watch, listen to a 55-year-old sing love songs? So I do all of this music, and that's why the I got a Mother Earth album coming up. The, the first album, Roots album I'm releasing really soon is all selections of material that celebrate nature. Um, and that has remained at the core of all I've done. I haven't always known that. It's, I just did it. And somewhere along the way, 
especially during those years of doing Beyond Survival and all the earth ceremonies, I kind of realized, this is why I do this. I do this because I want people to love nature just as much as I do, just because I know it'd be better for everything. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Please be sure to leave a review about Anchored online.